0: Hello, and welcome to Eyes on Success, a weekly program covering a wide variety of topics of interest to people with vision loss. I'm Nancy Goodman Torpey. And I'm Pete Torpey. Vision loss is a transition. Um, It's
1: just a phase of your life. And then you become independent. And your podcast is brilliant because of the fact that you're teaching people skills and techniques for utilizing and getting themselves along into a form of independence and that's absolutely fantastic because I really feel that the older age group don't understand this idea of a transition Um, and they, they get stuck and I found it very very sad that they do get stuck like that but they don't need to at all
2: And today's guest has a lot to say about some better ways that patients who are having vision problems later in life can be treated by their providers.
0: We'll speak with Paul Wallace, a low vision optometrist whose treatment relies on dealing with the psychological adjustment to vision loss before engaging patients in the use of adaptive aids. And we'll talk with him about his treatment methods as well as about his recently published book, Macular Degeneration, A Guide to Help Someone You Love. But first for our tip of the week, this week's tip comes from Paul Wallace. Yeah I
1: think the team effort is really the main tip. There's an interesting dynamic to support groups because initially people will go to a support group because they have a problem uh, because they've suddenly become an alcoholic or they've suddenly lost their vision or they've whatever the problem is and so they're going for help and they will be helped by their peers at that support group and then after they've been to the support group for a few days weeks months or however however the, the group is structured they'll think oh okay I think I can cope with this now because I've sort of understood what's going on the problem is that if they then disappear out of the support group there's nobody to help the next batch that comes in so it's a sort of give and take within a support group mechanism you need to take when you initially join a support group when you have educated yourself and you are now able to cope with your visual disability yourself, you need to hang around the support group because it's the next bunch you are going to come along that will need your help to get them out of the hole that they're in. So, you know, some people do hang around support groups. Other people are in and out very rapidly. But I will encourage anybody who is in a support group, stay in there and help the next batch that are coming along.
0: Support for Eyes on Success is provided by NaviLens, a four-color QR code designed to be located and read from up to 60 feet away without the need to focus on it. Personal places and items can be tagged and shared with family and friends with codes obtained inside the NaviLens app, available for iPhone and Android. More information is at navilens.com. You are listening to Eyes on Success. Success, 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 success,
1: success.
0: Let's start by meeting Paul and learning about how he views different categories of vision loss.
1: Uh, I'm Paul Wallace. I'm an optometrist, or I was until I retired a couple of years ago uh, in the UK. I originally trained at Moorfields Eye Hospital, where I worked in the low visual aid uh, clinic and was trained initially. I then carried on working in low vision aid for the next 40 years uh, in Dorset, which is a rural area in the south of England. I then wrote a book about how to cope with low vision when you suddenly get pushed into it with macular degeneration.
2: We'll talk a little bit more about the book later, but maybe you can tell people what the name of the book is.
1: Certainly, the book is Macular Degeneration, a guide to help someone you love. There is also an audio version. Uh, The book is actually written for friends and family of people who've got macular degeneration because by definition, they can't read the book very easily. Uh, Whereas the audio is directly uh, addressed to people who have macular degeneration.
2: And although it focuses on people with macular degeneration because that is quite a ubiquitous syndrome, it also has more general applicability to all kinds of visual impairment.
1: It does, but I kind of this evening or today wanted to talk about generally visual impairment because it's something that isn't really that well understood by people who have visual impairment themselves. As far as I'm concerned, there's nine groups of people who have visual impairment and you can break those down into three tribes, which essentially are age, So it's people who are born with a visual disability. That's the first group of three. The second group of three is people who lose their vision while they're of working age. And then the third group of three is people who lose vision uh, in retirement age.
0: Wow. You know, I never really thought about it that way. But now that you've mentioned it, it just sounds like those three groups would have totally different life experiences.
1: They do. And they're very, very different. And they have to be understood in that light. And that's partly why I wrote the book. The differences are that the the first group don't have a problem with losing vision because they've never had it. And therefore, they don't have psychological problems of coping with visual loss. They have technical problems with coping with, with visual loss. The middle group of people who are of working age have psychological problems because they lose vision in middle age or you know working age but they have a motivation uh, because they're living a life to get back to living a life properly Um, so they're motivated to get back and they have energy and enthusiasm whereas the final group of people who generally have macular degeneration are older they don't have the motivation very very often and it's very difficult to deal with that because they very often have this feeling that their life is over because I've gone blind and I'm old. I haven't got the will or the energy to work around it. So those three are the three groups.
0: You mentioned subgroups within those three major groups. What are the subgroups?
1: Those three groups have three groups each. They all have these three same groups which is to do with the nature of the blindness or vision loss one is total visual loss so they have no vision whatsoever the second group has a central vision loss and the third group has a peripheral visual loss and those are very different types of visual loss and people don't understand it and it causes a lot of confusion
0: support for eyes on success is made possible in part by our corporate partners
2: Find out more about partnership opportunities by sending an email to hosts at eyesonsuccess.net.
0: This week's focus topic is Paul Wallace's views on how to most effectively cope with vision loss. In the introduction,
2: you mentioned several different groups of people with visual impairments and subgroups within that. One of the major groups that, you know, I think, can be a big problem for people is people who lose their vision in the middle part of their lives. So they're not born blind, but they eventually lose their vision. Can we talk a little bit about that group and then see how they might be treated differently by a provider like yourself or how they might be treated differently by themselves and friends?
1: Yeah. So that middle group of people who are working age, as I said, there's three groups within that group. There's total vision loss, central vision loss and peripheral vision loss. Now, if you have complete vision loss, that is devastating. And being perfectly honest, I didn't really have to deal with that type of person because they had no visual loss. There was nothing I could work with. And so they have major problems psychologically, which we can go over later. The peripheral vision loss group and then the central vision loss group are totally different groups of people in a way and they get quite confusing. It's confusing for them, and it's actually confusing for the rest of the um, public. If you imagine that the peripheral visual loss people, if you imagine looking down a toilet roll tube, I think you have toilet rolls in the United States.
0: Oh, we do. They've been scarce during the pandemic, but we've got them. <laughs> i
1: sure they have. But if you look down at a toilet roll tube, you just get a very small field of view okay if you have somebody with retinitis pigmentosa they are effectively looking down a toilet roll holder so they have no peripheral vision which means they're going to walk into things they're going to bump into doors people are going to walk into them if they don't know they're there but they have very good central vision very often so they can actually read all the way down a vision chart and they can have six six vision but they are legally blind Now, what that means is that a person like that needs a guide dog because they can't get around at all easily.
2: So they won't see their surroundings and are liable to bunk into things and not know exactly where they are in an environment.
1: That's exactly it. They have great difficulty getting around. Their mobility is their biggest issue. The other group of people have central field loss are like the people who have uh, macular degeneration in older life. They've lost the central retina. They've lost the... For via at the middle and so the macula so therefore they can't read they can see all around them they can walk down a street with no problem whatsoever however if you then give them a bus ticket to read or a book they can't pick that out so they can't read things so they have a completely different problem to the other group and both groups uh, with either central loss or peripheral loss feel guilty because they don't think they're properly blind because they can see and it's confusing because if somebody who is blind can actually read a book, people think, well, you can read. So how can you be blind? Well, they can't walk around, so they are blind. And likewise, the person with um, central vision loss can't read a book, but they can walk around. They're never gonna walk into anywhere. They can see what's going on around them. They almost feel they can drive a car but they can't because they haven't got that detail. So both groups tend to feel guilty about describing themselves as blind, which is quite difficult for them. And when you realize that in fact, only 3% of people who have blindness or visual impairment have total vision loss, 97% of people who are classified as blind or visually impaired have a certain amount of vision. And so forth, they can cope with certain things. So that is one of the really big things. It causes a lot of problems.
2: Well, you know, it is interesting, as you point out, in some sense, the term blind or visually impaired is very nonspecific. There are very different types of visual impairments that lead to very different bottom lines in terms of what people can see, how they navigate, what tools they need to help them in their lives.
1: That's exactly the problem, and it is so vague in a way. The spectrum of problems is very, very wide.
2: Now, I tell people I'm blind, and I actually have no vision at this point, and mm-hmm. their first response, because they see me wearing glasses, which I wear for protection, their first response very often is, oh, yeah, so am I. When I get up in the morning, if I don't have my glasses, I can't even see the alarm clock. Well, you know, we're both blind, but we're both very different blind in some sense.
1: That's exactly it. And it is such a confusion and it causes confusion in the public's mind when they see people doing things. They think, well, you you know, you, you're not allowed to do that because you're blind. Um, and if you are doing it, then you can't be blind. So that is a major one of the major problems almost that people have to overcome psychologically themselves.
0: I'm curious. You mentioned three separate groups within each age group, the totally blind, the central vision loss, the peripheral vision loss. And of course, most of my experience with blindness is Pete. Mm -hmm. And when we first met, I would say his vision was fairly uniform between central and peripheral, but it was lousy everywhere. So he could use magnification Mm -hmm. And he could identify where the sidewalk was because it's a light color of concrete between the grass. But that was about it. So he couldn't quite navigate and couldn't quite read. But he wasn't quite, certainly wasn't as blind as he is now. He had much better access to both of those parts of his vision than he does now. So where do you see those people as fitting into this structure? it varies again with the eye
1: condition it depends what the eye condition is that the person's got and obviously it's also a moving target as well because if it's an active eye condition then the vision may well be deteriorating so you start off at one point but you end up somewhere else so you kind of got to deal with it as it is at that particular point uh, when you see a person to try and solve their problems at that particular point but one of the things that sort of got me in a way during my career was that as I said the bulk of people who most um, practitioners ophthalmologists and so on will see will be macular degeneration people and they have great difficulties with visual loss because of the fact that the psychological problems that come in as you develop um, a visual impairment and this applies to the older age group and the working age group which is obviously the first the reaction is fear because oh my god you know i'm losing my vision um how can i cope without it and you know I, i'm going am i going to go blind and to what degree of blindness am i going to go to and we all immediately work, jump to the worst possible scenario uh it's just the human nature so people are very very frightened by it
2: you know, i almost consider myself lucky to have been born with a visual impairment. I was born with uh, glaucoma, which Mm -hmm. back then they didn't know could happen in young kids. So my vision kind of slowly deteriorated over much of my life. But I was already plugged into all the resources and services available to people with visual issues. I knew about technologies and other things that could help me. And it wasn't such a big transition, but I can't imagine being partway through life, starting to lose your vision. You've been relying on your eyesight and that's your only mode of dealing with the world for your whole life. It's got to be a big change and very scary.
1: It is one of the scariest things that can happen to people. They are frightened, stupid by it. Uh, (laughs) You're, I say lucky, (laughs) but as I was saying, the very young people don't have these psychological problems because they've never had vision or they're used to having very poor vision so therefore they aren't that frightened by it
2: yes they start with a different normal
1: exactly if your whole life though has been orientated around seeing and suddenly you can't see it's like being dropped into into the middle of japan and not being able to speak japanese and there's nobody around there to talk to you you know and so you think oh i can't communicate with anybody it's a similar kind of thing almost that when you lose your vision, you lose your complete self-esteem because there's virtually everything that you normally do, you cannot do. And that is extremely difficult to cope with. And that idea of language, if you've ever been to a foreign country and you ever have to talk in a foreign language, if I go to France, which I do fairly often, I don't speak French very well. But after two days of trying to speak French, my brain is fried because it's such hard work mentally trying to speak a different language. Now, it's a similar thing with vision. Your whole world has been visually orientated. And if you suddenly don't have vision, it is exhausting to suddenly have to try and cope with this world that you just cannot do it. It's so difficult.
2: And you talk about that a lot in your book. And I was surprised to hear that, that, there is this mental exhaustion that you may not be aware of when you go blind later in life because your brain is having to adapt and do these extra tasks to compensate for.
1: Yes, I mean, it's one of the things I realized over my career, and I've never heard anybody talk about it, but it is, when you think about it, it's it's pretty obvious. Yes. 30% of your brain is doing visual tasks if you have normal vision, and suddenly 30% of your brain is being wiped out.
0: So I understand as a low vision optometrist, you can provide or suggest various types of aids, whether it's magnification or special prism lenses, or, you know, you have this huge bag of tricks. Mm -hmm. In your practice, were you able to address this mental exhaustion and the other psychological issues that people experience?
1: That's the interesting thing, actually, about my career. As I said, I started out um, at Moorfields, which is the best eye hospital in the UK, and I was trained there. But I got very disillusioned with the work as I was doing it over the years because a lot of it was fixated on the hardware, as you're talking about. I had this big bag of kit. I could do this, I could do that, I the other. And I realized, in fact, that the big bag of kit was actually pretty useless if you didn't address the person's psychological problems that they were having you could give them whatever you liked and they weren't going to be able to get on with it because they were still so hung up with actually coping with their visual loss which was a psychological problem to a large extent so therefore i spent the latter part of my career was dealing with people initially getting them through the idea of what was going on with them and so that they could cope with visual loss When they got around that idea, oh, that's what's happening. Oh, there is light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, that I can get through this. Then you can bring out the bag of goodies and say, oh, yes, you can have this, that and the other. But frankly, it was pointless bringing out the bag of goodies until you got them sorted out.
2: And I thought that was one thing that was particularly engaging and kind of special about your book. Although it dealt primarily with macular degeneration, as we said, it pertains to a lot of other vision issues. You talked about a lot of these other ancillary issues that people aren't usually thinking about when they're going through this transition and ophthalmologists, optometrists, etc., aren't likely to talk about either. I thought that was quite unique.
1: Yeah, I think it is in a way the problem is that the medical profession works on a diagnosis and treat model. So you walk into uh, a medical clinic and say, I've got a problem with something, this aches, hurts or whatever. So they go, "Mm, yeah, that's so interesting. So they'll look at you, scratch their head for a while and go, oh yes, you've got X or Y wrong with you. So they have diagnosed the problem And then they'll think, ah, because you've got X wrong with you or Y wrong with you, we'll do this treatment. We'll give you some pills or we'll give you an operation or we'll do this, that or the other for you. We've now dealt with the problem. We'll now kick you out because we've diagnosed you and treated you. That is the purpose of medicine. The problem with a lot of conditions is that they are chronic conditions and therefore they will diagnose it and treat it. But you are left with a long-term condition. It could be arthritis. It could be diabetes. It could be uh, visual impairment they don't know how to live with that condition. The people who are experts at living with a particular condition are the people who have got the condition. So the people who are expert at coping with visual impairment are people who've got visual impairment and giving empowering people to say, yes, you are the expert. It's all very well that people, bow down to the medical establishment expecting them to solve their problems they won't they won't solve those chronic problems of how to live with a condition the only people who can do that are uh, people who have visual impairment themselves and people like you on your podcast are incredibly important because talking to other people who have a condition is much much the best way of solving problems that you come across. I actually adore support groups in whatever form they are because they are the people who are going to help you most in the long-term overcome a visual problem.
2: Generally, when people do start experiencing vision difficulties later in life, their first interaction with a professional is with an optometrist or an ophthalmologist. And as we've been discussing, that isn't always enough what is your recommendation then for how people should get on the railroad tracks to get in the right direction?
1: There isn't a simple answer to that. You suddenly get a condition, you expect a sort of fairy godmother to appear on your shoulder and solve all your problems. Unfortunately, we don't have fairy godmothers visual impairment tends to be a cinderella subject across the whole world it's not good in the in the uk it's not good in the us it's not good in ethiopia it's very very variable it depends literally on where you are in the location as to whether that location will have good practitioners or not you might be lucky you might not be lucky if you're not getting the help that you think you ought to get nose around and start asking people you know who does it you will find someone in the locality somewhere that was, is able to give you the help you need but it's very very difficult to just say go to x y or z because even you know you have the national charities again it depends who, who's running it locally if the personnel are great locally fantastic if they're not okay you've got to go somewhere else
2: it sounds like it's sort of like being lost in the woods and you're looking for a path out. You know there's a path out and you just have to keep looking until you find it. You do.
1: I mean, in some ways, nowadays, the internet is very useful and great. But again, with the people I was dealing with, um, they weren't of an age where they particularly were internet savvy. Um, And also because of their visual loss, they then found actually using the technology was difficult. So again, it's difficult. In my book, I'm quite keen on the language is an interesting thing. You very often get the word carers being used. I personally don't like the word carer. I much prefer the word coach. So what you want is to get a coach who will coach you in how to use technology or coach you in how to get transport, coach you into doing all these different things. There's lots of different areas of your life that you will need coaching in when you've just lost your vision
0: is there anything
1: else you'd like to add vision loss is a transition Um, it's just a phase of your life and then you become independent and your podcast is brilliant because of the fact that you're teaching people skills and techniques for utilizing it and getting themselves along into a form of independence and that's absolutely fantastic because i really feel that the older age group don't understand this idea of a transition um and they they get stuck and i found it very very sad that they do get stuck like that but they don't need to at all
0: you are listening to eyes on success 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 Now for this week's final item, how to learn more about transitioning into vision loss and how to get Paul Wallace's book.
2: Paul, if people would like to get your book to read about what's in it, can you remind them about the title and where they might obtain the book?
1: Yep. Uh, The book is called Macular Degeneration Guide to Help Someone You Love. Uh, the book is available on Amazon or most of the websites. Uh, you can buy it through that. It, the audio version is also, I think that's only available on Amazon.
0: You mentioned earlier that the audio book is geared towards the actual individual who's losing their vision, whereas the print book is geared toward their family and other people who care about them.
1: That's correct.
2: And as we also mentioned in the show, although the book has macular degeneration in the title, this can be a useful resource for people going through any kind of vision transition. And of course, you can find all of that information in the show notes associated with this episode at www.eyesonsuccess.net. And before we leave, I wanted to remind people about our new Eyes on Success YouTube channel. We'll have that, link in the show notes also. And if you go to that link,
0: you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. So far, it contains every show aired in 2021, but we'll be adding a new one every week. That's it for show number 2015. Next week on Eyes on Success, we'll be talking about the Super LIDAR app. Developers are beginning to make use of LiDAR technology in some smartphones to assist those with impaired vision. We'll speak with Shane Lowe from SuperSense about their new SuperLiDAR app and how it makes use of LiDAR to analyze distances and warn about obstacles that might pose a danger to blind and low-vision users. So join us next week if you want to learn more. You've been listening to Eyes on Success, hosted and produced by Nancy Goodman-Torpey and Peter Torpey and distributed by WXXI Reach Out Radio. You can access the
2: full archive of previous shows, subscribe to the podcast, and much more by going to our website, www.eyesonsuccess.net.